Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to another episode of See Also. I'm Brodie Lancaster. And I'm Kate Jinks. And this week we're going to dive deep into the Andy Warhol diaries. We're going to talk about some oral histories. And Brodie will hopefully explain to me who the Kardashians are, because I have not actually been keeping up with them, unfortunately. It's going to be a long one, folks. Strap in. (laughs) BL, what have you been up to? Uh, Since our last episode, I have been... uh, I guess being out in the world a lot more than I have been lately. I've been to the movies twice uh, in the last week, which I realized was not uncommon for me at the start of the year. But uh, I haven't been to the movies since I saw Souvenir Part 2, which (laughs) I measure my time based on that. (laughs) So five episodes ago. (laughs) Five episodes of time has passed. The first movie I saw was X, the new Thai West horror movie, which I like more and more as time goes on um, and the more I think about it. I did seek out like some, um, I don't know if you've ever tried to find like a recap YouTube video, especially of like a horror movie. No. There there is no good film content on YouTube. I think it's a, (laughs) it's a real gap in the market that someone needs to fill. Not us. Not us. We don't need any more projects. (laughs) Um, But I feel like the vibe of everyone who talks about movies on the internet is like goatee Funko Pop collector. (laughs) And you know, it's a lot of people being like the ending of whatever movie explained. And it's like a very easy to understand ending, you know, it's very basic film comprehension, but I did find these two people who 
uh, had a recap episode about X and the YouTube channel is called Fish Jelly Film Reviews. The guys who host it describe themselves as gay homosexuals, Nick and Joseph. One of them doesn't remember any character's name or a lot of the plot devices and the other one does. And uh, it was just a really fun watch. Highly recommend. <laughs> I also went and saw Everything Everywhere all at once. Oh, I really want to see that. I'm curious to hear what you think. Okay. I'm not sure if I liked it. As I left the movie, I said, I'm not sure if I liked it, but I'm glad I saw it. And the more time goes on, I'm not sure if I... It was a good use of my time. Okay. Yeah. I've noticed that people are talking about it in this divisive way online of like, don't talk to me until you've seen mm. this film or like unfollow me if you don't like it. Yeah. It's, is it actually a divisive film in that way? Well, I, I kind of think it's it's a Marvel movie through the filter of like an indie meta multiverse very exaggerated but also human story about like a family and I just don't know if it was for me but yeah the inter- I mean the internet's always going to be annoying I was very grateful to go onto Letterboxd and see like a few reviews that kind of captured my feeling about it and a lot of people who like me were kind of came out of it going yeah I cried a few times because there were like some touching moments but it was kind of an experience more than like a I don't know people gonna (laughs) gonna cancel me for this because it is like you know it's a film that everyone's like really emotionally invested in all of a sudden but it, it to me really felt like a like a Marvel version of like Schenectady New York meets um, what's that Christopher Nolan movie with the spinning top? Um, Inception. Like an Incepti, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, <laughs> but like multiverse. So it's like really confusing. Anyway, and then I started watching Russian Doll finally, which I never saw when it came out. And mm-hmm. then like many years have gone by. And I was like, this is this is the time jump, like many versions of alternate events happening all at the same time show that I would rather spend my time watching. Yeah. Did you love Russian Doll? I really loved it. God, I just could not get enough when it was on. I like just loved it, devoured it. I really don't know what took me so long. I think I thought they were hour long episodes in the way that Netflix does. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would be a real big investment of time, but it was like three and a half hours. I really got a little thrill knowing that um, Russian Doll was co-created by Leslie Highland, who made Bachelorette, the 2015 movie, which was kind of like the bad girl version of Bridesmaids. It's also had Rebel Wilson in it, um, but it was Kirsten Dunst, Isla Fisher and Lizzie Kaplan playing like the fuck up bridal party. And I just also watched that new series, Single Drunk Female, which I don't know it. I think you told me about it. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like me. The tagline is please adult responsibly. Yes. That, yes, yes, that was, (laughs) that was me. I haven't seen it. Yeah. And I've already forgotten about it. I, I like binged the whole thing. It was produced by Jenny Connor. Oh yeah. Um, and like had some great writers and directors on it, but I think some of it just kind of fell short. I also went to the comedy festival to see Maria Angelico's show, The Disappearing Act, on the weekend. Having just watched the comeback, I was very fresh in like the cringe comedy kind of viewing and it really dialed into that for me, but then uh, became like a very touching, funny little like one woman show. She's a star. She is such a fucking star. She's a star. Yeah, I was very sad that I couldn't attend, but I'm trying to see it this week. 
uh, had to pull out at the last minute. You had some responsibilities in the home. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My little dog was calling to me. Uh, he needed to be supervised. So by his mummy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had to do all that emotional labor for my dog. <laughs> Just men taking and taking. Oh my God. He expects me to walk him and feed him. Yeah. So my dog had the snip last week. So he has got a cone on his head mm-hmm. and it's quite funny because we live in Fitzroy and I walk him past Loon every morning, right? It's like, oh no. You know, just to give you an idea of the... Of just how Melbourne you've <laughs> the become. gross lifestyle I am living. Yeah, so I walk in past Loon every day and every single day that line turns around and just, like, looks at him and gives the most, like, pitiful little eyes at him. Like, oh. Like, you can kind of hear... I figured out why you walk past Loon every day. <laughs> it's, it's just his... It's his spot. So, yeah, I'm looking after him at the moment. What else have I been doing? I have been, oh, my God, gardening every week. Every week. What have you been up to gardening? My God, who am I? I'm, like, well, not a, in my twilight years, but I feel like I am. There is a lot going on in your work and viewing life that you just can't talk about because we're going to find out when, like, a film festival program drops in a few months, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I spend like a huge amount of my time every day uh, watching films uh, via very confidential links and I cannot tell anyone anything. I balance out watching those films where I really have to be very present and really, you know, take them very seriously and, you know, like really consider them and the context in which they were made or that kind of thing. And I balance that out with really bad TV mm-hmm. and reading generally. Mm-hmm. But this week I started watching Julia, that oh. Julia Child. Is it a mini series or like a biopic? I don't know. I guess it's like a dramedy. It's like the story of Julia Child getting her own, her first TV show. Okay. So it's the bits in between Julia and Julie. Exactly. It's. <laughs> I saw someone say that it's basically Julia and Julie. If you don't like the Julie section of the film, Which like no it's just one no one does. It's like a, quite a cozy little show to watch. I've been meaning to watch it. Yeah, Babe Newworth is in it, and I love Babe Newworth. Uh, it was created by the same guy who created or worked on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, so it's a bit that, uh-huh. which I don't love. You can't do like a pin curl TV show without having a Maisel you in there. You sure cannot. But I got a bit of a thrill BL when at the end of episode three, like the crew came up and it was directed by Melanie Mayron from Girlfriends. <gasps> Shout out. Yeah. And then I found her on Instagram and she was like, I had the best time directing that episode. She's so still doing it. She's still doing it. It made oh me really God. pleased. And apart from that, I went back to therapy. Very exciting. I'm loving so, it. I'm so jealous now. It's really odd, isn't it? Just to like pay a person to listen to you. And it brings up a lot of like deep, like my family is very not a therapy family. Same. Like how do you kind of reckon with that side of things? Well, I like, as we mentioned last week, my therapist is maybe not good. But mm. Thank you to everyone who messaged me after the last episode saying, get a new therapist. I will. When I started, I told her at one point, like, I don't know if I'm doing a very good job of this. Like I, it's very rare that I just talk and talk and talk and people listen, you know, like mm-hmm. I, this is not a conversation 
because a conversation is like two way or people jump in or whatever, you know? And so I was kind of self-conscious just hearing where, if I'm just left to my own devices, which I guess sometimes happens on this podcast, Mm -hmm. um, like where I end up, you know? It's weird. It's it's a really odd thing to be doing if it's like it hasn't been part of your life for, mm. you know, most of your life, I guess. Yeah. I also have a theory that like hot girls grow up being listened to all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, for me, having someone be like just sitting there and listening to what I say, I was like, I'm not used to this. I'm suspicious. Yeah, I'm very like editing what like I, it comes out and then I'm like oh no why did I say that now she's gonna think of this thing yeah and then I'll say oh it just, I didn't say that because of blah and mm. she'll say I wasn't thinking that yeah and I yeah. go oh oh no what does that mean I know I do a lot of like and then this happens which I know is just a response or which I know I'm just projecting this and this and this like I'm trying to therapize myself as I'm doing therapy mm-hmm. yeah. yeah anyway it's so that's a trip it's quite fun <laughs> Re out that earlier chat. There is a YouTube video that is all the Julie and Julia film minus the Julie. So you can just watch a version that is all Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci Feely. Mm-hmm. Um, and no Amy Adams and uh, Chris. Yeah, I can't even remember. Chris? Fake, Chris. fake Mark Ruffalo. So the Andy Warhol Diaries recently came out on Netflix. It's a documentary series based on the book of the same name, which came about when Andy Warhol began having daily phone calls with his friend Pat Hackett between 1976 and 1987, shortly before he died. And Pat edited and typed up all of their conversations and published this like thick book of Andy's diaries in 1989 and it's kind of been brought to life in this really brilliant way on Netflix. I was not super familiar with a lot of like this series made me realize how little I knew about Andy Warhol besides like what happened in the 60s which by the time this series and the diaries are happening is very much in the past. Jinxie what did you think of the series? Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was incredible. I constantly feel like I know everything about Warhol Mm. um, and then am always surprised when something new comes along that really kind of unpacks his extremely complex life. And it's just such a kind of a gift that keeps on giving. I love the diaries and have, I remember finding a copy in a vintage store a really long time ago. I would have been a teenager Mm. and I have lugged it around to like every, you know, all of the millions of share houses I've lived in that brick. It's incredible. And so, yeah, I have like a very deep love for that, for the diaries Mm. in particular, Warhol and I actually share a birthday. Oh, my God. Yeah, August 6th. And so my birth date is in that diary. Uh And I've always wanted to have, like, a party based around the things that he did that day, (laughs) which would be pretty cute. What were they? He has taken sleeping pills, so it's off to a good start already. Great. Uh, Holston sends him a singing telegram, which he hates, and he asks (laughs) – there are, like, three people singing, and he asks them to – like stop singing so loudly. Can they be a bit more understated? Uh, Victor Hugo sends him flowers from a really chic florist and Andy is impressed. Then they go to see Annie on Broadway, like the musical. Then they go to do dinner at Mr. Chow's. 
And he doesn't want to sign the guest book because he doesn't want to sign it without his own pen. So he plans to go back next time to sign with his pen. So like the diaries are very detailed. Yeah. Like it costs $6 to catch the cab to Annie, you know, sure. like yeah. it's extremely detailed. And then at Mr. Chow's, he runs into Robin Williams and then kind of gossips in his diary to Pat that he thinks Robin Williams was there with like a mistress that ah. he met someone on the same day as he met his wife or like around the time that he got married and has been having this affair for a long time. And that's why Robin Williams won't come and join him at the table oh and have God. dinner. And he's like, Oh, I hope Popeye goes very well for him <laughs> uh, because his like the show he was in just failed or something or like just died. Was um, that Mindy? I think it was Mork and Mindy. Oh my God. And he's like, I didn't recognize him except for the hairy arms. Anyway, it's a great entry. Wow. Yeah, so I really love those diaries. And I think, you know, we are taught so much about Warhol. Warhol becomes this very abstract figure. Yes. Where you're like, yeah, pop, whatever. You know, Fame, Elvis, Marilyn. Yeah. And he's very like keywordy, you know? Totally. It made me like the diaries really made me kind of grapple with what I did not know about him like very early on because it was a lot of new information for me and the time that the diaries were happening I found really significant starting in 76 the 60s are well and truly over and I found it really charming how Andy Warhol used the 60s as kind of like a marker for things that were impressive or not. Like he would say, we went downtown and went here. It wasn't the sixties in there, which was just so sweet. The more and more he did it. But yeah, I, I knew about kind of the factory and like his films and his work, but I did not know a lot about the person himself or his like beliefs or I guess his close circle of friends. You just know the people he's kind of photographed with. Yeah, totally. And you know, like the superstars, you know, like mm. Gabby Hoffman's mom and iconic, iconic child of the factory. Exactly. Yeah. You know about all of those people like mm. in his milieu, but it's the inner circle that you don't really know about or yeah. one doesn't know about I don't know that's not covered in your high school art history class when you're asked to like do a Warhol you know yeah they're not like and his friendship with Basquiat was also kind of rooted in competitiveness and <laughs> yeah. sometimes thinly veiled racism yeah totally yeah. I've seen quite a few reviews for for the series describe it as exhaustive and I think it is not exhaustive I don't no. think that it is possible to have anything exhaustive about Warhol. And that's one of the things I love so much about this beautifully edited series. Mm. But yeah, they they really go into his relationships with race and agency. And like, there are a lot of difficult conversations in this series. Yeah. And they handle them so well, because obviously it's not just readings aloud from his diaries from the time they there are so many talking heads from so many parts of his life and they really analyze what he said in the diary versus what he said to other people how he viewed those conversations with Pat Hackett as him kind of editorializing his own life and the the hand he had in editing her transcripts of their conversations but then also the way that people since the diaries release have interpreted them. Like there's this figure in it, um, Jessica Beck, who is a curator and who just has really wonderful insights throughout the series about the way that his 
beliefs, his belief system shaped by growing up Catholic and all of these things, like how they influence his work in a way that we don't often think of when we think of Warhol's work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's one episode that they talk about this one late, very late series he worked on called Ladies and Gentlemen. And Warhol essentially invited black trans women to uh, sit for portraits. And they're an incredible body of work. They're Mm. beautiful, beautiful pieces. And Marsha P. Johnson was one of the women who came and and sat for him. And there's such a great conversation in the series about the two sides of it, of, you know, this unequal footing of Warhol selling this multi-million dollar work, but he was giving like these women $150 or something to come and sit for him. Mm. And I think it was the artist Glenn Ligon who appears throughout the series and he's just so eloquent. Well, he's such a great figure. He talks about who's throwing the party Mm. is the line he says, I think, um, about that particular work. And it reminded me of uh, the conversations around Paris is Burning, the documentary about New York ball culture by Jenny Livingston. She documented the lives of all these people who were involved in the ball culture that had not really been documented before in Mm -hmm. such a big way Uh, and she was seen as profiting from that as a filmmaker whereas the people who were in the film kind of famous for 15 minutes if you will and then kind of forgotten about Uh, and so yeah that just kind of brought up the ethics of what Warhol was doing. Yeah, in the way that he was kind of like a documentarian of like what what was around him mm. as well and he was obviously amassing like a fortune. A fortune, I know. He was Basquiat's landlord. I, I know, that whole thing is really weird and his relationship with Basquiat is so interesting. Yeah. There's this great documentary by Sarah Driver that came out a few years ago called Boom For Real, the late teenage years mm. of Jean-Michel Basquiat. And it's just, it's the best thing I've ever seen on Basquiat. Mm. Uh, it's really great. And it goes into the Warhol thing. It's a slightly different side of, yeah, slightly different take on Warhol within that film. There's this conversation going on within their relationship and people watching their relationship as it prospered, looking at it going, who's, who's using who and who's getting what out of this. And I think what the Warhol series tries to say is essentially that they were both getting something career-wise from their relationship. There was a real genuine intimacy between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. When that went away, I think they both were really suffering for it. Yeah, I think this series it does a really great job of showing the intimacy that Warhol had with certain people in his life. You know, a lot of documentation about Warhol is very much like he was asexual. Like we all know he was gay, but he was asexual. And it's like, well, no, he had, he had relationships Mm. with men and a lot of his work actually deals with that. The, yeah. And the film uses that in the way that like, it has a really critical voice, which I really appreciate. And it treats his sexuality not as something to kind of discuss in the first episode and then never again. It comes up constantly because it was such a present force in his life. It influenced his work and his relationships and how he felt about himself and the world. And Yeah, and you watch it going like, oh, things have changed, you know, needed to be closeted essentially. But the, they interview this one woman who's looking at his works in episode one and the filmmaker asks you know something about like his sexuality and she says oh you just have to look past that yeah yeah it's, it's like really, nothing's changed I wrote in my notes because that 
remember last year at the Met Ball? I think it was last year when Dan Levy from Schitt's Creek wore that horrendous, horrendous. Jonathan Loewe, uh, Jonathan Anderson for Loewe outfit, I guess, that took a David Waronovich piece and like quilted it onto his shirt. Like that work is called Fuck You Faggot Fucker. It's a deeply political, as was all of David Waronovich's work. And I just remember when that photo came out of Dan Levy on the red carpet, I think New York Times, like fashion critic, tweeted about it and said, Dan Levy making a statement about marriage equality. Like it's this idea that gayness is all about just like little kissies, you know, it's, it's about, foul. It's about it holding foul. hands and like having gayness sassy catchphrases. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes. It's horrifying. Yeah. Like, it's it's this very still present mainstream idea that, like, beyond looking good and sounding funny and having good catchphrases, gayness is still a scary thing to be filed away and, like, everything that comes with that. Like, Andy Warhol's panic over the AIDS crisis was, like, a very real part of the last few episodes of the series and obviously his life as well when there was so little known about it one of his final works is called The Big Sea which had all these readings I guess since he made it about religion and consumerism and you know brands and the way that he always kind of dealt with brands and appropriated brands but the reading that this curator Jessica Beck did on like she applied the AIDS crisis and his panic and fear and his Catholicism and like the leather scene, you know, she Mm -hmm. applied all of this to this work that just, it brings so much deeper meaning to it. Yeah. And in that, in the series, Chris Marcos talks about that work and then he's like, what the big C? No, that doesn't mean gay cancer. No, like he's really, and then he starts to reckon with his own sexuality on screen and like being out and yeah, it's really fascinating. I, I think you really hit the nail on the head of something that I, that drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. Like the, infantilization of gay men it doesn't really happen to women as such i remember being at the whitney and seeing this like toy you could buy of keith haring and a book about him and it was like the boy who painted walls or something like that this picture book i lost my goddamn mind like i was like he's a queer activist he was painted dicks dicks everywhere you know it was like he fucked guys like stop this infantilization it just it really drives me crazy and I think like online you see people using like reaction gifs I would say like 80% of the time they are of drag queens Mm -hmm. or they're black women Mm -hmm. and like two kind of groups of people who are taken as this kind of like funny reacty kind of like that's what they're there for and Mm. you don't actually see past that Mm. anyway well it's the way that like you brought up Paris is Burning before so much of what drag race and the kind of the straight experience of drag culture comes from Paris is Burning which and there's such a disconnect between like white straight women going to bars and screaming the drag queen's catchphrases and what the reality was of Paris is Burning. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's like a whole other like snake eating its own tail yeah. situation where drag race has begot drag race. It's like people now do drag because they've seen it on drag race. And yes. it's an extremely different kind of dra- anyway, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> Andy Warhol also did drag. In, he sure uh, did. 
<laughs> just to bring it back. And he looked beautiful. Um, some real highlights from the series also was the whole sequence where they went to a Diana Ross concert in oh, Central Park. So gorgeous. I was very curious as to why Rob Lowe suddenly became a talking head in the series. And then he I was too. He was had, like, how does he fit in? I was like, Rob, because they were talking about like, I think they were talking about gay stuff at the time. And then Rob Lowe starts speaking about Andy in the present day. And then they cut to Andy's diaries from the night he saw Diana Ross in Washington Square Park. And he was like, we were in the VIP section and Rob Lowe showed up. And then he just goes on about how beautiful Rob Lowe is, how he has these painted on lips. And I mean, the photos of Rob Lowe at the time are, mm-hmm. he's a beautiful boy. He's a beautiful boy. Yeah. And there are like a series of other people speaking about it. Like, and Rob Lowe was there and he was so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> we went out afterwards and Rob Lowe came. <laughs> It's really cute. Yeah, I loved that. And another scene that I know you loved, BL, was when he goes to Sean Lennon's birthday party. At the Dakota. At the Dakota. And Keith Herring is there. And there's this other guy who's there to set up a computer. Andy Warhol's there with Basquiat at Yoko Ono's apartment for Sean Lennon's birthday party. Keith Haring is there, and yet Sean got a Macintosh computer for his birthday. Yeah, and then Warhol says, oh, some guy kept calling me trying to trying to give me one of these, and the guy says, yeah, it was me, and it was Steve Jobs, <laughs> and Steve Jobs is literally at the apartment setting up a Mac. And he's so young. It literally is that meme that's like, one kid was turned away from blah, 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 the invention of the wheel. That kid turned out to be Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, uh, yeah, so that, like, for all of it's, like, interrogating... Andy Warhol was Forrest Gump, is what I'm saying. <laughs> he was everywhere in history. <laughs> yeah, for all of its uh, interrogations of, like, race and sexuality and, like, consumerism and, like, the art world at large, it's also just really fun, this series. You know, it's, like, a six-hour series... I watched it pretty much in one go. Yeah. I wish I'd seen it in the cinema, you know. Totally. The archival footage was brilliant. I hadn't seen almost any of it before. And I really loved the way that the director did not use any, like, Warholisms. You know, mm. when, like, someone makes a film and they're, like, it's about an artist and they're, like, oh, I'm going to make it look like their work. Yeah. So apart from, like, the opening sequence, there was no Warholism It wasn't, in like, there. four four faces no, all different colors wasn't, no one was like screen printed through it it wasn't an instagram filter it basically yeah. yeah but the one thing that he did do that i thought was really lovely was just before they'd throw to particular talking heads they'd run like i don't know four seconds of before they spoke of i remember there's one of benjamin Liu, and he's sort of laughing on the street before they actually cut to him mm. Speaking and it's very much like Andy Warhol's screen tests. Maybe mm. maybe that's a reach, but I thought well, oh, that's a nice thing. taking photos of everyone, so mm. there are photos of how he saw people, and then we get to see them. Yeah, but yeah, I think above all, it's very much about like he truly felt like an outsider, and mm. there's this constant refrain through it where he says like I'm just a freak. I can't change it. I'm too unusual, mm. and this comes up constantly. The outsiderness. Yeah, one huge recommendation I have if you are kind of interested in that side of things is uh, Olivia Lang wrote now a very famous book called The Lonely City Adventures in the Art of Being Alone and she focused on a number of artists and one of them is Warhol and I remember that was sort of the first time like I was reading the book I was loving it and you know she wrote about like Henry Darger and David Wojnarowicz 
And then when I got to the Warhol chapter, I felt inclined to skip it because I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But she just really uncovered something else within his world that I think is very much in line with this series. So there's a chapter on Warhol in that book, but she also wrote an essay for the Financial Times, which we'll link to about Warhol. That is just really beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I really, something that I kind of took away from the series was that Warhol has been so mythologized in culture for what he made and what he like represented. And he almost fell victim to that. It seemed like seeing him as a character or like a creator of things and the, the series, you really get a sense of him as a human being, which I really, really loved. Yeah. It made me revisit. I shot Andy Warhol, the film by Mary Harron from I think 1996. (laughs) Um, And it's all about Valerie Solanas who did shoot Andy Warhol and she's played by Lily Taylor. The cast of this film my God, it is so good. Although Stephen Dorff plays Candy Darling, which wouldn't fly these days. <laughs> Jared Harris is Warhol. Jared Harris from like Chernobyl and Lane from Mad Men. Mm. Uh, and he's a very, he's probably, he's better than Guy Pierce. Remember when Guy Pierce was Warhol in the Basquiat movie that Courtney Love was in? Oh, oh my God, Guy Pierce. Yeah. And Martha Plimpton. And also Michael Imperioli. Christopher. Christopher. He plays Ondine. And and the Velvet Underground is sort of loose, it's like appears, but they're like a party band in it. Of course. And um, Yola Tengo step in as the Velvets. And Donovan Leach plays the kind of front figure. I mean, I love Valerie Solanas. She's a problematic fave, obviously, yeah. <laughs> you know, very famous for writing the Scum Manifesto, Society for Cutting Up Men. It made me think, like, would Valerie be a turf? But she's hanging out with Candy Darling, like, <laughs> like trying to bring Valerie no into the... No heroes are safe. No heroes are safe. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I really have to watch I Shot Andy Warhol now that I'm in my Warhol era. Um, <laughs> I mentioned it before, kind of, but, like, Chris McKim's documentary, Wonorovich, is a must-watch. I kept thinking as I was watching the series as well of this video of... Professor Terry Smith, who's an art critic, and he just happens to be talking at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. It's this Vimeo clip from like 2005, and it is what I return to every time I have to remember how to be a critic. He kind of lays down his rules for criticism of confronting art and the questions you ask yourself to understand it, to write about it, and just to think about it, which I'll link in the show notes. Um, Kind of anytime anyone ever asks me advice on like, reviewing or criticism I send them this video oh that's great I haven't seen it and I love Wojnarowicz yeah um yeah that documentary is great if you can read close to the knives I would highly recommend that one about about his life I also this just reminded me of the novel An Object of Beauty by Steve Martin the huh. actor I've not read that novelist I read it years ago maybe like 10 years ago so not sure how it holds up but a warhol and the sale and purchase of one is kind of at the center of it and also Mark Ballot who is the art director of um interview magazine all the interview crew feature very prominently in the Netflix series but the cut and Wendy Goodman from the cut did a little video on his apartment that he purchased like years ago, this incredible warehouse apartment in New York city. Um, and I think the title of the video is the loft that Fran Leibowitz hates because Fran is Mark's (laughs) best friend. She's in there smoking ciggies and just talking about how much she hates the apartment. She went and toured it with him before he bought it. She told him not to buy it. And 
There's a line in it where she says, I don't want to be amused by decor as he's he's pulling out little like novelty items from around his home. So Fran would hate our houses, but she also hates her best friends and he's got Polaroids of Warhol and everyone else up on the walls. I love Fran. I'd die for Fran. I would die for Fran. She's so hot. She's so hot. She's so hot. (laughs) Blow smoke in my face, Fran. (laughs) Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Warhol Diaries, the serialization, I guess, of the Warhol Diaries brought up the idea of oral history books to me, which is such a, like, I read a lot of biographies Mm. and autobios, but I'm never as in love with them as when I read an oral history about a particular figure. Well, you you, want to hear what everyone else had to say about it. Exactly. And they're the best when they're kind of a figure that has very complex friends or relationships. And so people do not hold back. Mm. I guess the first one I ever read was Edie American Girl by Jean Stein. That's about Edie Sedgwick, who was, you know, one of Warhol's muses, yeah, muses, superstars. It's a totally different look at that like factory era of Warhol without Warhol being at the center. Mm. Uh, And it looks at, at her childhood you know, this little girl from a ranch uh, did to become like the first major like New York it girl. Uh, so I love that. But the one that came out more recently is Edgewise, a picture of Cookie Mueller. Cookie is like, you know, if she wasn't dead already, I would have died for her too. <laughs> Incredible artist, writer, part of John Waters' Dreamlanders scene. And it's such a great, great, great book. And like Mink Stoll talks so openly about all of these things. It's just, it's just one of the best things. And I love all of Cookie's books, but if you want to get an idea of the woman and that whole, yeah, scene, Mm. this is just brilliant. I love when an oral history is a little bitchy. Yeah. Like you want them to be gossipy. Yeah. I thought of a few that were less about a person, more about like a a scene or a time in history. A couple that you can read online include like, there have been like five written about freaks and geeks, but Vanity Fair's one from 2013 was the first and best, I think. Jessica Hopper also wrote this oral history of Holes Live Through This on Spin like eight years ago. And it opens with this kind of question about the what ifs around that record. Like what if we had gotten an introduction to live through this that wasn't through the lens of Courtney Lovers, Kurt Cobain's widow, you know, like what would the reception to this record have been? I loved Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman about the kind of like New York 
resurgence of rock and roll, like led by the strokes. Um, yeah. That was really fun. It was so good. And maybe like just over like 10 or 15 years ago when I was in deep in my, like I'm obsessed with comedy phase, I read uh, live from New York, which is an oral history of Saturday night live. I think it's been updated in the time since, but it was just a really fun journey through the, like from the cokey days to the like, time when Lorne Michaels wasn't there and then to when it became just like theater kids in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Give me the cokey days. They were the fun ones. I Mm -hmm. mean, once Gilda was gone, it became a lot less fun. And oral history is the best when it's like a quote from someone that says, we never wanted to play Arizona. And then the next quote is like, all we ever wanted to do was play Arizona. Like it's everyone contradicting each other. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. They're back, baby. After nine months off our screens, <laughs> not including the press cycles to farewell their last show and introduce their new one, the Kardashians are back on Hulu slash Disney Plus if you're in Australia with their new show, The Kardashians. Yeah. I have not yeah. seen <laughs> I haven't seen any of I, I no, I saw one episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. I was on a plane. Yeah. I think they were at Nobu. And Could I think it was like North saying like my daddy's the best rapper or something. Yeah. Um, I have seen every single episode of Revenge Body with Chloe Kardashian. Wow. It's an enjoyable show. Problematic and enjoyable. It is. Um, but I'm, I would just want to state up front, BL. Actually, I don't agree. I don't think it is, but keep going. <laughs> I, yeah, I just want to state up front that I'm not anti-Kardashian in any way, shape or form. I watch a huge amount of reality TV. I'm not like I'm above this. I, it, I just that. haven't yeah. gotten into it. You're either in it or you're not. And unfortunately, many years ago, I got in it and I can never not. You know, even when their show was just getting like a million viewers a week, I, I was one of them. Oh, you're a ride or die. I'm a ride or die. You've kept up. And oh boy, do I kind of regret it now. This new series, I'm quite interested to get your take on the first episode of the new series as someone who is not in it um, and maybe not as abreast of the storylines that they're going to be covering or are making reference to, but also someone who... Like, I'm assuming you're not going to stick with it and keep going. I don't know about that. I mean, yeah. I think I should probably preface this by saying that I texted Brody and screenshot off my television and said, who's the one in the white? Like, because <laughs> I you figured it out without I me think, needing to I tell did. you. I did. I was like, oh, Courtney, they all have K names yeah. and there is a Courtney. It must be her. So I'm not like fully familiar with them, which sounds crazy. Uh, I mean, it's, I can't imagine how much room I would have in my mind for things <laughs> if I didn't know who, not just who they are, but who they've dated, what, where the scandals are, who the children are, how everything fits together, you know, like what freedom must yeah. feel like. I, I, I dream of it for you. Having um, watched Chris's failed talk show and all the other spin-offs. Yeah, see, I've watched, like, I know, I know of, like, Kardashians through the other, like, you know, you've got your OJ trial, mm-hmm. you've got Kanye, you've mm-hmm. got Paris Hilton mm-hmm. assistant, like, all that kind of, the Pepsi commercial. Yes. Like, that's how I know them, I suppose. Yes. But I found the show a little dull, I have to say. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Keeping Up With The Kardashians was more exciting. I thought that they might do things more in a housewives way, like... yeah. But they're not. They're really just hanging around. They're yeah. just having a phone call. 
I mean, granted the phone call is about a sex tape and to Kanye, but I, I just thought, oh, they'll all be at, they'll all be at a lunch or they'll, yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I thought that yes. there'd be more, it would be more produced in that way, which I guess is a blessing that it's not. It's interesting to hear you say that because yeah, I guess you're right. They, to be interested in the show, you have to be interested in the fact that they're talking to Kanye about you know, the possible resurgence of a sex tape or what have you. And the The, minutiae of their lives. You have to really be involved. The funny thing is, is that the old series on E, um, I think the fact that E was a cable, like, I don't know that much about like the specifics of American cable shows, but I believe that E had this kind of, it was almost like conservative in a way in what they could do there as a reality show. Like it's not Bravo. It's not TLC. You know, it it occupies this space. That's kind of like, there were a lot of hijinks on the old show and there were very structured kind of talking heads that they would do. There was a lot of, you know, the cut used to do this series called keeping up with the continuity errors where (laughs) based on the photos that the family posted on their Instagram stories of what they were wearing that day, compared to paparazzi photos, they would figure out when they filmed certain scenes and like how they stitch these storylines together to make a show. So I think what they're trying to do now, they're describing it as more documentary style. Yeah. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. I think what (laughs) I think to them, what that means is instead of them filming, then patching something together as a storyline. And then months later they sit in a studio and narrate it and they're talking heads. It's now much more kind of like bachelor in paradise style is what my reference point for it, where they'll film Kim's kids playing with her. And then the next shot is her turning to camera and talking to the camera. Like I think they think there's a kind of fourth wall breaking going on, but the wall is always there. It's the Kardashians. Like they, they can only survive because of the wall being there. Yeah, they own the wall. They yeah. designed the wall. They <laughs> built it brick by brick. They're profiting from the wall. Yeah. yeah. What's the difference between the two, apart from the documentary style? Like, can you, are you just like, oh, I'm back in their world? Or like, th- what do you, what's your like critical take on it? I think my take is that what they always, what they always saw the show as was this kind of like their flagship product. It was always, the thing that behind the tabloids and behind the social media and the scandals was the place that you would go to get there. It was presented as an objective take on what was happening in the lives of the Kardashians, which it could never be because they were in control of it. And I think what they're trying to tell us is going to happen in this new series is that it's more like raw and unvarnished because they can, I guess, say fuck. I don't know. Like, (laughs) I don't think they realize how empty that sounds um, Mm. when they, they promise a more unfiltered view on things. It's like, okay, then tell us like if, if they don't show the Astro world scandal, for example, where the father of Kylie Jenner's now two children essentially held an event where 10 people died. This is not a true representation of what's been going on in their lives for the past six months. Or, you know, we see Tristan Thompson and Chloe having what is like the 100th conversation about how, he's going to do better and they're going to be in a relationship together. He's already impregnated another woman by the time we're watching this show. You know, Kendall's allegedly engaged to someone, Courtney, Courtney's ex-partner, Scott, who we see on this series, his kind of nightmare coming true, which is that when he and Courtney split up and she starts seeing someone new, he'll stop being invited and part of the family, which he always suspected and was kind of inevitable. That Do we like him at all? I only really know him because Lisa Rinna didn't want her daughter to date him. Well, on for Rehobber. good reason. He does not look sober. 
allegedly. I don't know if you're allowed to say that about someone. He looks someone, like but... Jared Leto in makeup for a movie. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I mean, Scott, Scott and Courtney were together from season one, episode one of the first show, which ran for like 15 years. So he's been in their lives for a long time. Both of his parents died in really quick succession. They had three kids together. Scott was a very um, uh, explosive partner at different times. And he promised many times to Courtney that he would get his act together and be the partner that she always wanted and needed him to be and the father that um, he needed to be. But he was also dating many teenagers um, since they split up. Sophia Ritchie and then, yeah, Amelia Hamlin, um, daughter of Lisa Rinna. Uh, I look at Scott now and I don't see someone who is sober, which is one of the main things that he always promised Courtney he would be. Um, and, yeah, Scott, Scott has always been kept around in a way that never f- – fully felt natural and I guess he's going to continue to be mm, okay. ahead of Disick Aviation whatever <laughs> that is that, yeah. are we really going to put Scott Disick behind the steering wheel of a plane not sure you asked me well you said that you think I probably won't stay with it and I watching it felt like I I was like oh I'm done like one and done yeah on on this Kardashian show but then they started talking about big pussy club and I was like oh maybe I'm in I want to hear about their wide set vaginas. Yeah, I thought, oh, if that's what they're talking about, I'll yeah. watch that. I really appreciate it. What kind of a person am I that I'm <laughs> like, they'll talk about, you know. I mean, that's the kind of shit that made the Kardashians fun at the start. Before they were the most powerful celebrity force literally in the world with all the money and power that comes with being a Kardashian, they were the three sisters who would get drunk and drink each other's pee and have a conversation about whose pee tasted best. Like they were really chaotic and messy and silly and embarrassing. They did embarrassing shit. And as like, obviously their image is now like their power. And so in protecting their image, they have become so much more boring. Hmm. Um, But it has been interesting watching that kind of the resurgence of Kim's sex tape with Ray J made itself a plot point in the first episode of the show. I've heard some people say that they think that was fake. I don't think Kim is that good an actor. I know she's not. And I also don't think she has that much control over her kids to kind of like have Saint on cue, show her something that he saw on his iPad. Mm. I think the cameras kind of just happened to be there at the exact right time. Yeah. Right. And who knows how much else they filmed in order to get that moment. Sure. Yeah. 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 So will you keep watching it? Absolutely. I'm going to be watching every week. There is a connection to Harry Styles that I discovered when the credits rolled, which I found really interesting. I don't know if you notice, it kind of looks like selling sunset. They, they're very excited. Like Chris Jenner went on Ellen and was like, have you watched the first episode? It's so cool. The way it opens with the like, terrible. that terrible drone footage is the thing that they are most excited about. It was dreadful. As the camera like spins you in this like dizzying way into the offices of Kylie Cosmetics and Skims and whatever else. It looks and feels kind of like a Selling Sunset style show, which I found interesting because the showrunner Danielle King is behind shows like The Parisian Agency and Million Dollar Listing. Ah. And she's making the show with Ben Winston, who I know because Harry Styles is Ben Winston's daughter's godfather. And there are these paparazzi photos of Harry Styles' peak One Direction cuteness, and he's poolside 
when they were on tour there in like Miami or something, the back, he's wearing an Ashley Williams shirt, that designer. And the back of it says hot and hard in big red letters. And he's got his arms around Ben Winston's neck and is kind of nuzzling him. So anyway, mm-hmm. the fact that Ben Winston is involved with this show is very important to me personally. Okay, yeah. good. Well, I'm glad that there's something in it for you. Yeah. For me, it's just about the big pussy club. <laughs> <laughs> Also, also for this week, Jinxie, what are you recommending? My first one this week is a podcast also, and it's actually a podcast also from you, BL. You recommended this to me. Never not influencing. (laughs) Never not influencing before we started all of this. And I love it. It's called Everything is Fine. It's by two women, Kim France, who was a founding editor of Lucky, and she was like an original writer for Sassy, which love that, of course. Mm -hmm. And then with Jen Romolini, who's a writer. She was the deputy editor at Lucky. She worked at Shondaland.com, Hello Giggles, etc. They say it's a podcast for women over 40. But like I am over 40 now. You are nowhere near being anywhere near 40 Mm -hmm. and I have recommended this since you recommended it to me to so many people of very differing ages and everybody loves this show yeah I think the I think the women over 40-ness of it is just there's an element of like not faking it or like not pretending to have easy conversations or something maybe that's maybe that's the energy yeah it's it's very much a podcast of like two women talking about everything in their lives and talking about like anxieties around work and stress and you know being alone and dealing with being slightly invisible from a certain age and that but they're also really intelligent like smart funny women Mm. and I love I like look forward to eavesdropping on that conversation every week yeah I love that you love it also great podcast art I've got a cook also i've been really enjoying ali slagle's cooking videos they first popped up for me on the new york times cooking website and she made this one pot broccoli macaroni and cheese which i made a couple days ago it was very blustery and cold and gray in melbourne and it was just so fucking delicious put it on my instagram story and i had photos within hours of like four other people it looked Um, fucking delicious it's so yummy i think it could be veganized quite easily too if you wanted to try but i saw that ali slagle has a new book coming out which is called i dream of dinner so you don't have to low effort high reward recipes a cookbook i've also got a cook also Mm -hmm. um this is a recipe that we're gonna have to put on instagram stories because i won't go into it because i kind of made it up at some point in my life it's just this red lentil tomato sweet potato carrot soup it's like a very one pot soup situation but it is the one thing that i crave all the time it's become like this comfort recipe i always have it frozen in my freezer like i'll i never not have this one particular soup it's like the, you know it's autumn here and it's getting a little bit cold and chilly Yum. it's really the most easy comforting delicious thing I've got a read also for Never Be Alone Again, which is an oral history. Well, it's not an oral history. It's like a almost like a book length scene report by um, a writer called Lena Abascal. And it's all about like the blog house movement. She covers in the intro the fact that like you might have been going to the clubs and listening to the music, but you might not have ever used the term blog house, which was the case for me. And it kind of is more in reference to like the delivery mechanism and the the way that technology intersected with the rise of in Australia labels like modular and parties, which I think were very big in Sydney at the time. 
Um, I can attest. Yes. It's like, it makes me think of like street party photos here and like obviously the Cobra Snake in LA, Corey Kennedy, et cetera, et cetera. Girl talk, the mashup, like all of that stuff. If you have any kind of nostalgia for that, you will really love this book. I had to buy it from evil Amazon because I couldn't find an Australian stockist for it. Um, but yeah, it's fucking great. And she's done a bunch of really interesting interviews about it. It kind of preempted that like indie sleaze conversation. But yeah, I was reading it on the weekend as I was watching footage from and photos coming out of people going to Coachella. Mm-hmm. And all I could think about was not to sound like a millennial who runs like a meme page on Instagram that talks about doing ketamine. All I could think was like, I just want these 21 year olds at Coachella to like put down the green juice and pick up MDMA. Like just have a bit of fun. Just be like, you don't need to do drugs, but like just be a bit messier. There's this real kind of like conservatism in like young people that I'm seeing especially in the, at a music festival context like that. Anyway, the book is really great. It makes me want to go to a nightclub, question mark? I completely agree with you on that Coachella thing. It's like, put the con down, pick up something questionable. They're all like, uh, I'm having such a long day. I don't know how I'm going to last all night. So I get an iced coffee. I was like, babe, no. <laughs> For all of the sober attendees of Coachella sober out queens. there, that is great good for you yeah my last one is a listen also I think quite a few maybe the first episode one of my listen also's was uh, questing with Zakia on NTS live this great um, playlist it's, she hasn't updated in a while so I thought I should offer something new uh, Lornette's hour with Laura Coxeter on NTS live it's a monthly show she plays like lots of folk and soft rock, psych folk, essentially. So if that's your jam, then this is perfect. I look forward to her lilting voice talking about these like old folk stars every month. It's beautiful. Uh, my final one is also a listen also. It's just a new single by Australian pop icon Morat. It's called Surprise Me featuring Azealia Banks, an artist that Morat grew up listening to and like inspired her to start making music. And Azealia has done an Australian-themed verse in the song, which includes the line, my pussy tighter than Nicole Kidman's face. So, all right. You got me interested. Enjoy. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening to See Also. We would love it if you could leave a review and a rating wherever you are listening. It helps us reach new people that we don't know. And please share the podcast with your friends, your followers, anyone you think might enjoy it. You can find us on Instagram at See Also Podcast. And thanks as always to Samuel Hodge for our beautiful artwork and Harvey Sutherland for our original theme music. See ya. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.